Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll read uh, verses 13 to 14, one sentence in the Greek, one thought, really. And then we're going to look at uh, just verse 7 this morning. Uh, This is going a lot slower than what I thought. If you think we're going too slow, you can... Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a whole series of sermons on this. He preached on it. and He took 23 sermons to get through verses 3 to 14. So we're going at a breakneck speed compared to him. Like, uh, we'll get through this four times faster than he did. So... Uh, but I promise we'll get through this uh, eventually and uh, I'll press on. There's just a, just a, this is a jam-packed section of Scripture, uh, tons of really good truth. So uh, before we read it and consider it, let's uh, pray together. Uh, Father, as we come to Ephesians 1, we thank you that uh, your Holy Spirit inclined Paul to write it so that we can study it, imbibe it, uh, grow from it, and benefit from it. So show us what it is that redemption by the blood of your Son is. Show us what it is to have our sins forgiven. And we ask, Father, that you would uh, take all of these truths and uh, drive them deep into our hearts so that we'd be a changed people, different really when we leave than when we came in and ready to serve you in light of what it is you've called us to. This we pray for Jesus' sake and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Ephesians 1, beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth." In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory." One more time, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Thus far God's word to us this morning. May he bless it to our hearts and lives. Beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here this morning, I want us to just basically walk through um, verse 7, noticing redemption and then also the price of our redemption and then taking a, a look at sin and what it is to be forgiven of our sin. Uh, so uh, just walking through here, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. Now this word redemption has a, a huge background to it. Uh, the, maybe the greatest aspect uh, of it is when the Lord brought the people out of slavery in Egypt. Deuteronomy 7, 8, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you, ransomed you from the house of slavery, from the hand 
hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, the word used here has a, kind of a, a little bit of an emphasis on it. It doesn't, really, doesn't necessarily emphasize the slavery out of which we've been redeemed, although that's a reality, or really the person who's being redeemed. But what's emphasized here, which is why it's often translated ransomed, is the price that's paid to redeem us. So right here, this redemption by his blood, the word redemption itself emphasizes the price that's paid. And then in case we were wondering what the price was, it says by his blood. So the sense of this phrase then in verse 7 is, in him we have redemption all thanks to his blood, because of his blood, through his blood. So it was the blood of Jesus that got us out of slavery to sin and to ourselves. And just uh, quickly, this, this sermon is going to be too long anyways. Quickly, beloved, we were born into slavery, enslaved to ourselves, enslaved to our sin, enslaved to the world, and we can't break ourselves out. We couldn't. So something had to be done to get us out of this slavery, and that's where the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ comes in. It's by his blood that we're actually set free, that we're out of bondage, out of slavery. We can live now as free people, free to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to focus now, though, upon the price of redemption. Why does Paul say by his blood? In him, we have redemption through his blood. He doesn't say through Jesus' life, through Jesus' death, but through his blood. And I want to show you how Christianity itself is just, it's covered in blood. It's, it's a very bloody religion right from the beginning all the way to the end and why this is so important. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Something had to die. Skins, animal skins. An animal had to die. There was blood that was shed to clothe Adam and Eve because the fig leaf thing that they made up for themselves just wasn't going to cover it. And then Genesis 8.20, Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every uh, clean, clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Again, animals bled when Noah made that sacrifice. Genesis 15.10, Abraham brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. So implicitly, we've got things bleeding uh, in the Old Testament. Now, when the Israelites came out of Egypt, we've got explicit blood going on kill the lamb, spread the blood on the doorposts. And so you come out of Egypt by the blood of the lamb. In Exodus 29, when the priests were, we'd say ordained today, but when they were consecrated and set apart, um, they had blood all over them. You shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar." Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons' garments with him. So you're going to be ordained. You're going to get bloody. Again, Exodus 29. The book of Leviticus is just covered in blood. Blood is everywhere in the book of Leviticus. All the sacrifices, you've got to throw blood against the side of the altar, sprinkle it everywhere. And you can imagine the bloodbath. Remember when Solomon dedicated his temple, 1 Kings 8, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Now just think for a moment. I was looking online. There's about a, a gallon and a half of blood in a sheep and about eight gallons of blood in an ox. 
So if half of that blood, let's say, spilled on the ground, you've got 500,000 gallons of blood on the ground in just that one big sacrifice when the temple was dedicated. If you were a priest, at the end of the day, you wanted a nice, long, hot shower because you're filled with blood. In fact, being a priest in the Old Testament is very akin to working on the killing floor in a slaughtering house. You're killing animals. You're the gutting animals. You're figuring out where's the fatty lobe, where's the kidney. Get this carcass outside the gate. We've got to take this blood, put it in a catch basin, sprinkle it everywhere. Being a priest, you'd come home red, covered in blood, if you were a priest serving the Lord. And in the New Testament, the word blood is used again in in very key places. Acts 20.28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Romans 3, 24 to 25, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And then Hebrews 9, 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Why the blood? Why is blood important? Well, blood's important. Leviticus 17 sort of tips the hat to why it's important. Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. And then Deuteronomy 12, 23, be sure that you do not eat the blood for the blood is the life. If you're an Old Testament priest, you would have been very familiar with it. You put a lot of the blood in catch basins or catch pans so that you can sprinkle it and throw it on the altar when you're done with it. So let's say you slit the throat or however they did this of whatever animal was brought to be sacrificed and you're catching all this blood in a basin, etc. or you put the animal on, a, on some sort of platform and you're catching the blood as it spills off. As you're doing this, you're watching the life of the animal drain out of it. As the blood leaves, the animal dies. When the blood's in there, it's not. So you go you have this strong, robust animal, and all of a sudden it's lifeless, and it's not moving at all. And you understand as a priest that these people who are sinners, and you're one of them, they sinned, and so they came with an offering. And if you're standing in line waiting for your sacrifice to come, you're standing in line between 100 people who already blew it, who also blew it in Israel, you're watching something die, and you go free. You, the worshiper, come having committed a sin, and the animal dies, and you get to go. Something's going to die. Something has to give up its life. Something has to shed blood in order for the sinner to go free. Substitutionary atonement proclaimed and preached very thoroughly in the old covenant. So it's quite significant, beloved. When John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lambs take away sin. How? By bleeding, by dying. It was quite significant, maybe even more so in John 6, 53, when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And you can imagine the disciples' ears must have almost fallen off at the Last Supper when Jesus said, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink blood? But the Old Testament Israelites were actually forbidden from drinking the blood. You couldn't drink the blood. 
And Jesus is saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. Poured out is sacrificial language. That's what you did. The animal, the animal was poured out. The blood was poured out. Jesus is referencing himself as the Lamb of God. And maybe more astonishing is when he's hanging on the cross, he says what? To telestai, which is, it's finished. When the priest would have a lamb be examined, you'd put a lamb out all week sometimes for the, for the Passover. And you'd examine this lamb all week long. And by some accounts, what takes place at the end of the week-long examination of this land or, or the days-long examination of this lamb, the priest would go out, and if nobody found a fault or a blemish on this lamb, the priest would declare to Telestai, it's ready to be sacrificed. And Jesus on the cross cries out to Telestai, it's finished. He's the perfect lamb. He's the one who's going to bleed. He refers to him in light of the sacrificial system, beloved. So through the pouring out of Jesus' life unto death, we are redeemed. We're redeemed by his blood. What does it mean by his blood? He died in our place. By his blood, we're ransomed. His blood was the price that had to be paid in order for us to be redeemed. Please notice the emphasis upon the price paid. It's not just a goat you walk out into your back pasture and pick up. It's Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, who bled. That's the price of our redemption. Look, if somebody comes, you're, in, you're on the slave market, all right? And somebody comes and they say, I'll, I'll give a dime for that person. I'll give a quarter maybe because I'm feeling generous. They don't think much of you, do they? You're not worth much. You're worth, a, you're worth 10 pennies. Let's say you're on the slave market and come, says, someone comes and says, I'll pay $10 million for that slave right there. For this slave, you'll pay $10 million. Yours, yeah, I'll pay $10 million for that slave. Now you're worth a lot. In the eyes of that slave owner, the one who bought you, your master, you are worth an incredible amount. Beloved, ponder this for a moment. Think about it. We'll look at it in just a bit. God couldn't have paid a higher price for you and me or for any Christian anywhere. He couldn't have paid a higher price. What more could he have given to redeem you and me? Write a check from heaven? No. Send some gold down? No. His only begotten son, the only one he has. He didn't think it too much to send him to redeem you, to redeem me, to redeem every single Christian. There is no higher price to pay. We've been redeemed by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, a high payment. So what, you say, what's the big deal about being redeemed by his blood? Look, in the first instance, it means at least this. We've been bought with a huge price. That means something for how we respond to this incredible gospel. Look, if you get a job, someone hires you, you're totally unqualified for the job, and they say, I'll pay you a million dollars a year to show up and to do this job. You're like, I'm in. I am staying up all night to study this job. I will learn about it. I'll be up at 2 o'clock in the morning. I won't sleep for years if that's what it takes because of how high you value me. You're going to go whole hog into this, beloved. The Lord Jesus Christ paid an infinite sum for you and me to have redemption, beloved. So how much more would we say, Lord, I'm in. You, Father, you gave me your son so that I could have eternal life. You sacrificed him. You put him on the cross instead of me. You made him go through hell for my sins so that I never have to undergo your strict justice for my sins. I'm all in, Lord. I'm yours. <laughs> You've been bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. 
to use the language of Paul from 1 Corinthians 6. So that's what it means. So are we all in? God went all in to redeem us, beloved, and he couldn't have done anything more. All in. I give my son to redeem you. Beloved, are we all in? Are we counting the cost of following Jesus all the way in? Secondly, it also means that any thoughts we might have about ourselves, which suggests we're crummy, worthless, no good, just horrible people, have no place in the Christian life. They just don't. Now, of course, we have those thoughts. Maybe someone's told them to us. Maybe we think them ourselves. But beloved, God paid a high price for you because he loves you. He thinks highly of you. Consider that. When you're having those down days thinking, you know what? I'm just a useless human being and I'm just going to go to the grave and everybody's going to forget about me. God won't forget about you. Well, nobody really prizes me. Oh, but take a look at the price God paid for you at Calvary. God prizes you. Well, yeah, but that's just God. Well, I want the praise of other people. I want, I want them to praise me. I want myself to praise me. Think about this. The people that may make you feel worthless or when you make yourself feel worthless, we're all going to be a pile of dirt. We're going to be like a meal for a worm farm eventually, right? We're going to be buried in the ground or have our ashes spread around the world somewhere. People will be breathing our ashes in. That's how we will become beloved. So when other people speak to us or we speak to ourselves and it has nothing to do with anything encouraging or anything godly and it's tearing us down, the one who never dies says, I love you. I paid the blood of my own son to redeem you. You're in. Let that speak more powerfully. That's the final word on how valuable we are and who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us today might be thinking because we don't believe in Jesus Christ, we are worthless. Ultimately, to this world and to some extent, you you would be right in this world. You are worthless. All of us have become worthless, Romans chapter 3. So if you're feeling worthless, that's exactly right. Here's how you can become worthwhile. You, you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You let his blood cover over your sins and do away with the whole notion of trying to save yourself. It just won't work. You're not good enough to do it. None of us are. So be redeemed by his blood. And then you have the infinitely precious and valuable blood of the Lord Jesus Christ shed so that you could be redeemed. And then you're someone. You're a child of God. You have eternal life. That's something to write home about. Uh, I want to move on from here and look at forgiveness of sins then in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Or I keep saying sins because that's how I've got this stuck in my head. Same thing. Uh, the forgiveness of sins. I don't, every time we recite the Apostles' Creed, we say the forgiveness of sins. We believe the forgiveness of sins. And I wonder how many of us really understand, myself included, just how profound that truth is. Number one, let's just start with the whole notion of sin. Because the only way forgiveness means anything is if we actually understand what sin really is. It's a small letter word. It's a small three letter word that explains every single problem in the world. Every earthquake, every tornado, every fire burning out of control in California or wherever it's going on, every single uh, heartache, every single despairing day. Every single difficulty in everyone's life who's ever lived, is living, or will live is explained by that one word, sin. 
What Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, and we would have done the same thing, has absolutely wrecked and destroyed the very good creation and turned it into something that's devastating. Beloved, you don't have to look far to see pain, to see tears that we may be covering up, to see difficulty, travail, suffering, torment, everything in this creation. Look in the mirror, look across the aisle at the people you know, everywhere you look, difficulty, suffering, that's on account of sin. R.C. Sproul put it this way, when we sin, we not only commit treason against God, but we also do violence to each other. Sin violates people. There is nothing abstract about it. By my sin, I hurt human beings. I injure their person. I despoil their goods. I impair their reputation. I rob from them of precious quality of life. I crush their dreams and aspirations for happiness. When I dishonor God, I dishonor all people who bear his image. Is it any wonder then that God takes sin so seriously? Some people will say Christianity is all about trying to convince people that they really are sinful and hurting people and need to have this taken care of. What Christianity is telling people is not that trying to uh, invent sinners so that Christ becomes relevant. Christianity is trying to make people aware that we are really sinful. Whether or not we realize it, trying to make aware people aware that we are really sinful. And that's why we need a Savior. And if there's anyone wondering whether or not sin is a big deal, just take a look at Jesus hanging on the cross. Is sin a big deal? Well, the only way to deal with it was by Jesus Christ bleeding, suffering, dying in the place of sinners. That's the only way to deal with sin. Is it a big deal? The Son of God has to die. If you don't think sin's a big deal, go stand at the cross with dirt between your toes, take your sandals off, sit down in a lawn chair, and stare at it for a while. The crown of thorns, the bleeding, the screams of the damned one. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of sin, beloved. Because we're a mess. Because we've wrecked the creation. Because of that three-letter word, sin. That's why he's hanging there in our place. Spurgeon put it this way. If you would really know how great a thing sin is, remember what it costs Christ to be its forgiver. Go to Gethsemane and see what it cost Christ to bear it there. The sin that covered him with the bloody sweat was no trifle. Then follow him to Pilate's hall and hear the cruel thoughts falling on his blessed shoulders. See the soldiers take him away and nail him to the cross. There he hangs between heaven and earth to die for guilty sinners amid untold anguish, which no human eye could see and no mortal mind could understand. Yet... There could never have been any forgiveness for sin if there had not been all these pangs on the part of the sinner's substitute. Surely sin must be a great thing to need such a great sacrifice to put it away. And Paul says in verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. What does it mean to forgive sins? Well, forgiveness is pretty variegated. The, The word here used is actually a strict definition of aphasis is the act of freeing and liberating from something that confines, release. The act of freeing from an obligation, guilt, or punishment. Pardon, cancellation. It has to do with letting something go. It has to do with letting someone go from a debt or an obligation. There's actually a perfect illustration of this in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. You know, the first goat was brought in and offered as the sacrifice, but the second goat uh, was brought in, and this is what happened, Leviticus 16, 21. 
Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. Now, (laughs) I've often wondered why they call this the Day of Atonement. How long did that take? All their sins, all their transgressions. He confessed over. This seems to me more to be like the month of atonement or the year of atonement. He shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." Want to know what forgiveness looks like? What Paul's talking about here in Ephesians 1 7? You put your sins on someone, Christ, and away they go. You put your sins on the scapegoat, and they're gone. They're removed. They're released. They go away. Which is why Micah can say in 7:19, You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. The sea's about seven miles deep. That's a long way down. It's why Isaiah can say, You have cast all my sins behind your back. That's why the psalmist can say, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. East and west don't meet. Our sins are forgiven. They're removed or released from it, beloved. And it's amazing. On the cross, Jesus says something like this. Father, forgive them because they just don't have a clue. Father, release them. Same word used. Father, release them. Let them go. Which means what? If the people go free, then Jesus doesn't go free. He's actually calling down the Lord's wrath on himself. Lord, in case your wrath is going to miss the target, let them go, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing, but I know what I'm doing here. And I know why I'm hanging here. So Father, let them go, put it on me. And that's exactly what takes place. It's the last thing he says before the three hours of darkness hit. It's as if the Lord Jesus Christ hanging in heaven as our faithful high priest, hanging between heaven and earth, sees the cloud of God's wrath coming. And as a faithful high priest wants to make sure of something, Father, before this wrath comes down, let them go. Don't put it on them. They can't bear it, but put it on me. All stand in their place. Indeed, don't forgive me so that they can be forgiven. Beloved, what does this mean to be forgiven of our sins? It means a lot. Number one, it means this. When we see what it costs Christ to forgive our sins, it makes sin look ugly. Look, sin initially is attractive, right? Or we'd never do it. Sin never walks in the door and says, hey, I want you to go scrape your knees and get all bloody all over yourself and just live in a lot of pain. Sin always walks in the door and says what? Hey, you can be like God. You can have a better life. Your life can be comfortable. You can be your own Lord. This is going to feel great. But when you look at what sin cost the Lord Jesus Christ, And all the suffering he went through to pay for it. All of a sudden sin looks ugly, horrible, and everything that we want to be done with and run from. Because look at what it took to pay for it. Look at how ugly. When you see Jesus hanging on the cross, is that a pretty picture? Well, yes, in some ways, but no. Looks absolutely despicable. One from whom men hid their faces. Why? Because he's got all the ugliness of sin written all over him. He looks like us, beloved, like we should have looked. Sin is horrible. 
So when we understand what it took to forgive us of these sins, sin isn't beautiful. I read Spurgeon again. He said it so well, I don't want to try and even duplicate it. I think that everyone who has felt the burden of sin and has stood at the foot of the cross and heard the cries of the great sacrifice and read God's wrath against it, every such person feels that sin is an awful thing. You cannot trifle with transgression after a vision of Gethsemane. You cannot laugh at it if you have once stood at Golgotha and heard the cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. The death of the Son of God upon the cross is the grandest of all moral lessons because it is a lesson that affects the very soul of the man and changes his whole idea of sin. We love sin till we see that it killed our best friend and then we loathe it forever. So, beloved, maybe some of us are here are wrestling with, with, with sin, with committing it. We don't think the forgiveness of it's that big of a deal. Go stand at the cross and watch your best friend, the Lord Jesus Christ, die on account of sins you've committed. And all of a sudden, sin becomes very ugly and we'll turn away from it. Uh, something else I want to mention, which is sort of a substitute for forgiveness that we oftentimes put in place of forgiveness. It's just common in the Christian life, common in my heart. I've seen it work itself out in so many different ways, and I invite you to consider this in your own life. It's so common for us as Christians to think that when we blow it, when we sin, that we can somehow make up for it, that we can sort of obtain forgiveness some other way. And there's really, so I, I just wrote, wrote down three ways that we can do this, but these are by no means authoritative, just thoughts. We can try and make up for our sin directly, indirectly, or futurely. New word. Directly. This is where we can blow it in a relationship with someone. If we can blow it with our spouse, we can blow it with our coworker, we can blow it with our neighbor. You know, we, he threw a branch on our side of the fence and we threw the branch back or whatever. Or we tore down his fence and he didn't want us to. We can blow it in so many ways, beloved. And we can directly try and make up for it by all of a sudden trying to be nice and kind to the people back. We can try and avoid the sin, pretend it never happened. We treated someone horribly, and now instead of saying, look, I need your forgiveness, I'm sorry, we just go out of our way to try and pretend it didn't happen and put on a a show or whatever and think that our doing a better job now directly in this relationship now forgives the sin of the past. Sort of a, I'm trying to outweigh the balance a little bit. I did evil, and now I want to try and outweigh that with good, and therefore I'm forgiven. That's one way to avoid forgiveness of sins. Another way we can do it is indirectly. We may, let's say we blow it at work, okay? Then we go home and all of a sudden our wife is wondering, why did you buy me roses today? The real reason is, well, I blew it at work and now I'm going to try and make up for that by loving my wife really well or loving my kids really well. Or or we blow it at home and we go to work and we're just on top of the game. So indirectly, we're trying to make up for our sin by overcompensating in another area. Again, it doesn't pay it. Or here's another way we do it. Maybe this is the most common way that we avoid forgiveness of sins. We say, Lord, I blew it, but I'm going to do better in the future futurely we make up for our sins lord i absolutely blew it yesterday but i'm going to do better in the future therefore i'm forgiven all of these beloved are ways we avoid forgiveness of sins and actually make our lives just despairing ugly and we can have no real joy because we have hanging over our head this whole notion we've never dealt with the sin we've avoided it up until now For some of us here, God may just have to totally wreck us so that we no longer have any good we can think of in our lives to outweigh our sin. And so finally we'll come to the cross and we'll say, Lord, I I just really need you to forgive me. And the Lord would be saying, as it were, you've always needed that. 
You've just totally missed this because you thought you were making up for your sins. You've not made up for any of them. Beloved, it's not possible to make up for sin. It's not. Damage is done. It's over. Somebody pays the price. Remember Matthew 18? The, the, the king forgave the servant 10,000 talents. The debt didn't just go away, right? Who incurred the debt? The king. He's out of 10,000 talents. It's a lot. Somebody incurs a debt when sin happens, beloved. When it's forgiven, somebody incurs a debt. Somebody says, you know what? I'll take the loss. I forgive you. But if we're forgiven, beloved, somebody, somebody has a loss. That's why forgiveness is so hard. Forgive me. It means we're saying, can you please own the debt? I messed up. Can you own the debt? Beloved, that's what we're doing with God. Every single time we do this, the way that we can enjoy our forgiveness and sing. Anybody wonder why Paul's singing so loud? Because forgiveness of sins. They're forgiven, Lord. Look your sin straight in the face. And here's what we say. Lord, I totally blew it. Look your friend in the face. Look whoever you sinned against in the face. I totally blew it. I can't make up for it. Nothing I say, nothing I do can make up for this. I need you to forgive me. Let this go. I need you to incur the debt. I'm sorry I may put you in debt. I need you to incur the debt. Please incur it. Love it, I don't know where we are as far as enjoying this forgiveness. I don't know where we are in light of it. But if we're trying to make up for it, either by uh, trying to please people or by saying, Lord, a future version of myself will be worthy of, of, of your love, so don't hold me accountable for this, and putting our hope in that, we're going to live despairing lives, because if you know enough by now, you realize that the future version of yourself will never arrive good enough soon enough. In fact, we'll never be good enough until we get to heaven, and we need forgiveness before we get there. So, beloved, stare it in the face. Look, if, if you had a hundred grand in credit card debt and a mortgage... And somebody walked in the room and said, I see you're in a lot of debt. How many of us would say, yeah, but I'll get out of it someday. Some of us might say, yeah, but you know, I'm really good at this other stuff. Yeah, I got a little bit of debt, but I'm really good at my job. I'm really good at playing the piano or I'm really good at whatever the case may be. I'm really good at sports. Yeah, but that's totally avoiding the issue. You've got a lot of debt, don't you? I'll pay it. How many of us would say, no, I'll take care of it myself. I'm I'm, I'm not really in that much debt. You know what? I'll get out of it in like 10 years. Don't worry about it. How many of us would actually argue that? Who of us would say, thank you. Thank you for paying. And who of us would leave just excited? This is incredible. 200 grand out of debt. Here we go. This is great. New lease on life. Beloved, infinitely more so. God shows up into our lives and said, you're in a lot of debt. Adam and Eve started a predicament you can't work yourself out of. Every day you live, you're deeper in the hole. I'll pay it. How many of us are saying, you know what, Lord, in the future I'll do better? That's totally missing the point. Lord, I know I've got a lot of debt here, but I'm a pretty good person here. Totally missing the point. Who of us will say, Lord, thank you. Thanks for paying it. I need forgiveness. I can't pay this. I need you to extend that to me. And how many of us will walk away just singing? We might be singing if we won the lottery, right? We won't be singing if we got out of debt. How much more should we be singing that we got out of hell? That we got out from underneath God's wrath? There's an incredible song that just floats around Christians. God's paid all of my debt. I'm set free. So repent of our sins. Let them be covered by Christ's blood. 
And finally, I want to look at according to the riches of his grace in verse 7. We'll close with this. Notice the language says according to the riches of his grace. This is really simple grammar, very profound. It doesn't say out of the riches of his grace, which is what a lot of pastors, a lot of theologians notice, and it's very important. If a billionaire gives you $5, he gave you out of the riches of his grace, okay? Didn't hurt him at all. Out of his riches, he gave you five bucks. If a billionaire gives you a billion, he gave you according to the riches of his grace or in line with the riches of his grace. Beloved, God gave us Jesus Christ according to the riches of his grace. In other words, God ponied up everything there was to pony up to save us. He didn't just give us a little bit. He didn't give us a $5 bill. He gave us his only begotten son. That's according to the riches of his grace. I'll conclude with this. There's a story about Alexander the Great who had a general whose daughter was getting married. Famous story. And this uh, daughter went out and spent uh, lavishly. Uh, Alexander the Great actually offered to pay for the whole wedding. When Alexander the Great uh, amassed the bill and brought it to, uh, when, when the when the general amassed the bill and brought it to the, uh, Alexander the Great, or the, the Alexander the Great steward, um, the steward looked at the bill and was just astonished. Like, this is huge. Like, there is no way Alexander the Great is going to pay this. The general really blew it. He should not have thrown such a big wedding. And so he brings the bill to Alexander the Great, and to his surprise, Alexander smiled and said, Pay it. Don't you see? By asking me for such an enormous sum, he does me great honor. He shows that he believes I am both rich and generous. Both rich and generous. So, beloved, here's a picture of our God. He's both rich and generous. He has the ability to forgive all of our sins. That's his riches. And he does it. That's his generosity. So enjoy it. Live in it. Revel in it. Celebrate it. And as we go out this week, understand that all your sins are forgiven so that we can get busy not trying to make up for our sins, but so that we can get busy glorifying God and serving Him in light of the fact that they're all forgiven. Let's pray.